So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too perhaps may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. Hello and welcome to Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats, brought to you by Man Marking. My name's Dan Reed, and today we'll be taking another look back at an example of mental ill health in football from yesteryear. Today, we're focusing on Motherwell legend and Cardiff City hero, Huey Ferguson. As usual, I was joined by a special guest to help tell this story. Today's guest was Neil Palmer. Neil is an author who lives in Bristol, and he's written a number of football books. He's written about 10 now, and he joined me to tell the story of Huey Ferguson. He's currently in the process of researching and writing a book about the legend that is Huey Ferguson. So I'm now going to hand you over to Neil and the story of Huey Ferguson. Yeah, um, my name's Neil Palmer, and I am based here in Bristol. Um, I've written various books about various football clubs and various players, and at the moment, I'm researching a book on Huey Ferguson. What prompted you to um, to do the book about Huey Ferguson? I, I, given where you you live in Bristol, I suspect is it because you're quite close to Cardiff? Maybe I don't know yeah. what that why that was for. Yeah, um, it it was really. I was born in Cardiff actually, um, and it was what really brought it to the fore was the when they went to the 2008 FA Cup final. Mm. And I read a little piece about Huey Ferguson. I knew, like, the story of, of what how Cardiff had taken the cup out of England, and that it was always a very good pub quiz question. And I just decided, really, to... I just read up on it, and that must have been... Well, it was, it was, it was, it was a long time ago, say, 2008, and it was, it was always there for me to do a book. I always fancied doing the book... And I was amazed that nobody had, because I always in my mind had it down as either a book or even as a sort of a documentary. You know, it was that sort of story, really. And as we've we've just spoken about there, just before we hit record, about mm. kind of the, what can often be sort of long and arduous process of, of researching books about yeah. people and footballers that were playing and, and alive so long ago. What have you been doing as part of your research? How have you gone about getting information for this book? And, and, and you know, who have you spoken to or who would you like to speak to? And, and how has that process been, particularly during lockdown as well? Yeah, it, it's, it's been very good lockdown. Um, it, it, it's, it's been good and bad, really. It's been, I went straight to the source as such, which was Huey Ferguson's grandson, which I managed to get hold of him again. It, it, make it more confusing. His name's Huey. So, um, so yeah, so I, I spoke to him and he was a re- he was a great help. We've only ever spoke over the phone. What I desperately need to do is get myself up to Scotland. The guys from Mother, Motherwell, the guys from uh, Dundee and also Cardiff, those historians are just gold dust, those, those mm. fellas. And stuff like that, they've sent me stuff. And so during lockdown, I have been able to at least read a lot of that stuff and find out bits and pieces and also read other books about players of that time, which gives you an insight into what what it was like then as well. And also sort of any any book about 
basically the 20s mm. so I'm, I, it's been quite good sort of being able to read stuff yeah i find it quite a it's a really fascinating period obviously given mm. the, the sort of period between the two world wars and the just the, the the sort of the way that life was adjusted because of that but also i suppose given the way that the industrial revolution was was taking hold and, yeah. and how cities and towns and stuff were changing in in britain it's 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 a really interesting time as you mentioned there huey was he was born in 1897 um yeah. up in scotland and i guess for a modern day kind of listener a modern day person it's probably quite hard for us to get a bit of a tangible sense of what it must have been like to live at the end of the 19th century and into the start yeah. of the 20th century from the sort of little bits of research that i've done before this episode when huey was born motherwell itself was starting to to, to grow and the industries there such as sort of steel and iron were beginning to, to become a little bit more commonplace from what you've kind of researched and what you've been writing could you give us a bit of an idea of what it might have been like for huey growing up at that time yeah well the first thing i'll say is it was tough with, with without doubt um as you say it was Glasgow as a, as a place in Motherwell, it was, a lot of the people worked, it was linked to the Clyde was just, you know, shipbuilding was just sort of starting, as you say, that the revolution. Also mining and that sort of thing. But in, in and around Glasgow, what you had is you had, and sort of the Motherwell area, you had um, people were just, I think it was, I think there was around 85,000 people were crammed into one square mile. And then across areas of the city and mainly sort of living eight to a room and 30 to a toilet so they were all living in rooms although there was large buildings that that's what it was so it would have been incredibly tough um and poverty and illness would have been horrendous to be perfectly honest and for somebody who wanted to play football football was merely just sort of a recreation it was you needed to go and earn, earn some money as opposed to you know football sort of thing so he had that and if you look at Huey he was he was in a he was in a room with his mum and dad with five other brothers and one sister so that sort of paints its own picture what that was like to be honest yeah it's quite incredible really isn't it when you think back yeah. to what that must have been like I don't know if you've ever been to um there's a there's a, a thing you can go to in Edinburgh called uh, Mary King's Close which is yeah. um like it's like an underground kind of part of the city from where the, the newer city was built on top of the yeah. old city wasn't it and it, it's you get the sense of how cramped and and mm. and um sort of the, the conditions of what people must have been living in back in those sort of times and yeah. it's you obviously hear about them and maybe see them in films and that sort of thing but it's it just must have been crazy like com yeah. even compared to what people um what people lived in years before and years after that sort of specific period it was it was crazy yeah absolutely it was you know what well, dickensian and what have you i can't you know you, you can't imagine what, what it was like to be perfectly honest yeah no exactly and and then huey himself as you were talking about there football was a, a pastime for him a, you know a hobby yeah. probably would never have in his wildest dreams have ever imagined it was a career and i suppose when he signed some motherwell in in 2016 that must have been incredible for him and for his family. But he was quite a sought-after young man, wasn't he, at that time? He'd gotten quite a reputation locally for his, his, exploits, his exploits as a junior player. Yeah, um, he had. He, uh, he was, it was interesting, really, with him when he was young. So he, he, he played for a club called Parkhead Juniors, and 
they won what was the equivalent of the schoolboy cup, which was like the Scottish cup. And he was sought after, um, but he was Motherwell were his club. And so you had a, uh, the other sort of Scottish sides, when we say about he was sought after, he was sought after by other, other Scottish clubs. But back then it was very much a case of that you, as a young lad, you would stay within, within your area and, and that sort of thing. So it was always really going to be a case of Motherwell. And, you know, he really did sort of hit, hit the ground running, to be honest. Yeah, very much so. He made quite a quick impression at Motherwell. Scored a couple on his debut, didn't he? And yeah. sort, of, sort of set the tone for his time well, there, didn't it, really? Yeah, it is incredible. I mean, he scored he scored two on his debut, which was against Wraith and they, in a 2-2 draw. And his first season, he scored 33 goals. Um, and 17 of them came in the first 10 games, <laughs> which well, you couldn't buy him now, could you? <laughs> but it's solely based on that season. And then if you look, you know, he just increased and increased. In his second season, he was picked to play for the Scottish League against the English League. And and then what, during his time in Motherwell, he was also, which was a, a, an incredible thing that I've, I've had to research only a little bit, but I've got to research it more, was he was picked for a, a Lanarkshire select team to tour South America. And that was in about his third or fourth season of uh, being with Motherwell. And the Lanarkshire team were made up of um, Airdrie, Motherwell, Clyde, people, you know, players like that. And yeah, off they went for a couple of months and toured and played in Argentina, played the Argentinian national side as well. So, you know, then came back and just proceeded to score goals for fun, as it were, really, with, with Motherwell. I mean, it's interesting when you look at what that would have been like today for somebody up in Scotland to be scoring that many goals. It, you know, I had to check the, I had to check the the numbers really because it was it was an incredible scoring rate. Yeah, it was. It, it's one of those where you have to double take when you look at it because he just. Yeah. I, I did one of these episodes about Huey Gallagher, who was obviously played. Uh, it was yeah. from, the, from the same sort of area, wasn't he? he was from Lanarkshire as well. Yeah, that's right. And, and his goal scoring record is is. I mean, the only word for it I can think of is barbaric, to be honest with you. Yeah. And Huey Ferguson even outscores Huey Gallagher. It, it's, it's like, ridiculous. So I suppose then that begs the question, what type of player was he? What 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 was his style of playing? Well, I mean, what these newspaper cuttings of the time would say he had a great shot and he was an opportunist and he was quick. I mean, he wasn't very big. He was about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, and that... The only person I could think of in, you know, even that's even going back a bit was somebody like Jimmy Greaves, mm. where, who would, would just get the ball and just go and just head for goal. And and that's what he was like. And then, like I said, he'd just appear in the box. He wasn't a big, you know, big old sort of six foot centre forward and that sort of thing. Um, he could head a ball. He, his timing from, from reports was was incredible, but it was all based on the fact that he was an opportunist and he'd pick the ball up and then he'd be off, he'd, he'd go. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to compare with nowadays sort of players, but I think the only comparison would be somebody like like Jimmy Greaves was. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's yeah, I mean, you, you, you look at a goal-scoring record like that and you, you just, it must have just been ridiculous. It just, like, the, there's a lot of... Um, I think you get a lot of players at certain periods where, the, I mean, we've got it now, obviously, with someone like Lionel Messi. 
Yeah. You do, you, you, you do look back and you just think, it must have just been. You must have turned up as the other team and just thought, "I'm not even bothering today." Like, what is the point? Because he's yeah, he's, and, and he's already and the scored. Other, exactly. And the other thing I found really interesting is, well, even when he went, you know, obviously moving up, but but when he did move, he still couldn't get in the Scotland team. No, I I read that. I I just thought yeah. that was really strange. I couldn't yeah. work out what was. The, well, I presume there was just people ahead of him in the in the pecking order, or was it? Yeah, was, and I think there may have well been a lot of politics. Oh, I say that, but you know, there you had a guy called Andrew Cunningham was in was it was in the role who played for Rangers, and then you had a, another guy called Andy Wilson who was at Middlesbrough, and they were basically the front two, and he couldn't even get a look in which, like I said, even today I cannot fathom how, how he never got a Scottish cap or got anywhere near it. So I don't know, I don't know whether it was you know political or something like that I, I, I really don't know but I, I did find that amazing yeah it's weird isn't it you, you almost wonder if if it, there was something is he falling out with someone or is yeah. that someone doesn't is he rubbed someone up the wrong way but then I was reading a little bit about the type of person that he was he, I believe he was teetotal didn't smoke which is quite unusual for the time yeah. um, he was a I think he was an avid bird collector he, he went to church I think that gives you a little bit of an idea. It's maybe the type of character that he was, but have you been able to get maybe a, any other type of sense of what type of person he was? Yeah, I mean, there was an awful lot of stuff about about him when he sort of passed away, and everyone said he was a he was a quiet, he was a very family orientated man. He liked the limelight, and liked in the fact that what he was doing, and he was proud of what he was doing. He loved being a footballer, but loved being a footballer not in obviously a showy, a showy way or or anything like that. Um, he, he and he just appeared a very, very humble man, and I think that may well have been part of his downfall as well, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and we'll we'll come to that because I think yeah. it's very relevant to the to the story. He, he he leaves Motherwell then eventually in uh, in 1925, um, and that's I mean not before he scored over 300 goals in in about just over 300 games as we were, yeah, we were mentioning. Right. And it's hard to quantify, but where does he kind of sit in the list of sort of legendary footballers in Scotland? I mean that's obviously a a long and storied list, and yeah. given that he never made any appearances for the Scotland national team, no, it's, but he is he's one of only seven players to this day to have scored more than 350 league goals in the history of English and Scottish leagues. And yet, I do genuinely feel that, I mean, part of the book is is the fact, I do really feel that he's been sort of in some ways forgotten. Yeah. It's so, incredible, isn't it? it something yeah. like that with that. Do you think a lot of that maybe is due to the, the time that he was playing or? Yeah, I, I think probably, because if you look, if you look it up, you know, you, you go on the internet and look it up, a lot of it starts, you know, statistics and things like that. Some of it's of lists of players start in the 30s or 40s. Mm. So, you know, he, he may well have missed the boat. But I was I was staggered by that. You know, like I said only seven players to this day. It's a yeah, uh, yeah. It's a short list, isn't it? And it's yeah. It's and we'll you know I suspect there may be some other reasons why he's been forgotten as well and we'll come on to those slightly later mm-hmm. on. But as I mentioned, then he he left Motherwell for for Cardiff in in 1925 and it was a it must have been quite a, a sad day for for Motherwell fans who who you know had and you know he was there about ten seasons or so and he was yeah a, must have been a hero of theirs quite rightly and they yeah, gave him gave him quite a quite a a, a big send off didn't he when he left. Well- 
Yeah, it, it was an, it's an incredible story, really, that, you know, that they closed the steelworks and the factories that lined the railway line. And as he left on the on the train to, to, to go down to Cardiff, they all sort of came out and, and waved him off, which is an incredible image when when you think of it, you know, of of that happening. But that's what that's how much they thought of him. And yeah, it was a it was a fantastic a fantastic image that all this all the supporters and and even the factory owners would close would close down just because they knew Huey's train was coming along past them yeah it, it, a fantastic image yeah and it gives you a bit of an insight into probably not just as a player but maybe as a person and the fact that he was yeah. you know part of that local community and despite the fact that it was a place that was you know a, a town that was growing in population yeah. it was still quite a probably quite a tight-knit community as you say and yeah, his move to Cardiff, I found it quite interesting because I read that he turned down quite a few clubs before agreeing the move to Cardiff. Why specifically did he choose to move to to, to the Bluebirds? I think he I think he was sold the idea by the manager Fred Stewart. Cardiff at the time had sort of, I think it was 1923, they just missed out on a league title by a goal. And then they 1920. Five, they played in the um, FA Cup final and were beaten by Sheffield United. And they were at, they had a, a situation where Cardiff were spending a bit of money and wanted to build the club up. Um, in those times, the one thing they lacked was a centre forward. And then obviously the perfect person was playing up in Scotland and that was Huey. And so they pulled the, pushed the boat out to get him because they wanted to build. And obviously the fact that what he went on to do was was it because although we talk about the league title back then the really big thing was the FA Cup for a team to win the FA Cup so that was always the dream of 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 the you know the directors and and the supporters really so i think that's really what swung it for Cardiff because they were going to build the side around him they were very much a team that was based on on sort of defense on defence with people like Fred Keener at the heart of the defence. So they, they didn't let in too many goals, but it was just the fact that they needed a centre forward and he was the best around. And I think it, it there's a, a really easy way of demonstrating how highly regarded he was. It was a, a similar sort of time is when Dixie Dean moves to to Everton mm-hmm. from, from my club, Tranmere, and he yeah. moved, Dixie Dean moved, which I think was a, a British record fee at the time of £3,000. Yeah. And Huey Ferguson, did I read that he went for £4,000? Yeah, £4,000, yeah. Which I think, given the, the regard that, that Dixie Dean's held in, I think it, it kind of Well, just... it is, isn't it? It's incredible. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. Um, as I say, he's, he's sort of forgotten, but they certainly did push the boat out for him. That, 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 that's for sure. And his, his goal-scoring exploits continued at Cardiff. Um, he found the net just shy of 100 times in... Uh, about 140 matches over four seasons. So yeah, I presume, presume yeah. he, he adapted to the step up in level pretty well by all accounts. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the way the way the club played, the, they needed a they needed a forward. They had you know a player called Ernie Curtis who would play out wide, and Ernie would just slip balls through, and he would just it was bread and butter to him. It, it really was. And then also, I think there was an awful lot of they, nobody really knew who he was and, you know, there wasn't that sort of thing that they knew about and they'd read him press cuttings, but it certainly wasn't 
a tactical thing like it is like it is today. So they he really sort of hit the ground running with Cardiff City and and, and they again, you know, loved him as well. It's one of those really um kind of romantic things about football that you don't really get any in fact you don't get almost at all anymore. The the idea of a player coming along and the first time that you see him is the first time that you ever have known he exists. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and 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 you used to get it even I'd say even maybe 10, 15 years ago, in, yeah, especially yeah. in tournaments, in, in World Cups and European Championships. Yeah, that's true. And you'd yeah. be watching them and you think, who on earth is that fella? Yeah. <laughs> and you'd have never heard of him before in your life. Whereas nowadays, you you already know who everybody is. He, he, there's no one yeah. who's really a surprise. Sometimes people can surprise you that maybe they're better than you thought they were. But yeah. it, it, I think that's one of the romantic things you don't get with football anymore is is that surprise at seeing a player. Um so Huey's Huey's finest moment, uh, probably uh, probably in his career, and it's uh, as you mentioned at the very top um, when you were you were planning writing this book that it was the thing that that maybe had surprised you that he that book hadn't been written about him before. Mm. So his finest moment comes on the twenty third of April, nineteen twenty seven. Do you want to talk the listeners through what happened on that that sort of historic day? Well, um, yeah, Cardiff. For- Qualified for the FA Cup, they beaten Reading in the set in the semi-finals. It was against Arsenal, and it was I think both clubs had over three hundred thousand applicants applications for tickets, and a hundred thousand were um, distributed to the various clubs. There were still thousands outside as well. Um, it was an it was a, a momentous day, really. Um, Particularly, Charles Buckham was playing for us was for Arsenal at the at the head of the uh, Cardiff defence was Fred Keener. And bear in mind, like a lot, like some of the older lads there, Fred Keener had fought in the Somme in the First World War, which you know, and still had shrapnel in his leg, which always makes me laugh now when I think about people with injuries now. I know, <laughs> anyway, especially when you hear about players yeah. these days being out with a dead leg. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so fellow yeah, so he's still had a bit of shrapnel in his leg from the song. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he... And and it was it was Huey's day. And like I said, they, they put on extra trains to come from Wales. And I, and I mean Wales, even like the Swansea supporters, even people from Swansea and all over Wales came to, to the cup final there were they come down days early apparently there were there was Welsh supporters all over London for the for the weekend and so it, it was an interesting final really because it part of it given out to people was the radio times and the radio times so people could follow it on on the radio the cup final they had a grid system on Wembley so when the commentator was talking, he would say Ernie Curtis in square two. So, for instance, you'd look and so you'd know where Ernie Curtis was and how the game was developing. And that's where you get like the phrase back to square one, because the ball would come back to the keeper who was in square number one. And, you know, just a little thing like that really. Just, that's amazing. I didn't know amazing. that. Yeah. And that's where it came from. It's like um, a um, really huge game of battleships going well, on. It was, yeah, it was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's how it was on the radio. And bear in mind in Cate's Park, which is in the centre of Cardiff, there was 25,000 supporters who couldn't get tickets were listening on a radio that was boomed out to 
uh, for the game. So as you can imagine, you know, as it as it was until a few years ago, the FA Cup this was the biggest the biggest moment. Um, both teams, it was a it was a tight contest between both of them. They both had chances, and then in the end, I think it was around about fifteen minutes to go. A ball comes through. Huey strikes it, and it appears that the 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 um, the keeper, the the Arsenal keeper, sort of at at the ball. Dan Lewis, and he, he happened to be Welsh as well. <laughs> Dan Lewis had the ball, and then it squirms underneath him, and goes into the goal. And another thing, and and after the game, Dan Lewis blamed his brand new woolen goalkeeping shirt. And even to this day, that if Arsenal play with their goalkeepers, they always wash a goalkeeper's shirt before the match, which is all dates back to that that final in in nineteen twenty seven. So anyway, Cardiff win win the FA Cup, and it is that's when you know it's, it's Huey Ferguson and the side's greatest greatest ever moment. They then go on and win the Charity Shield and beat the amateur side Corinthians. They beat them two one. Yet again, Huey scores, and you know it is for it is plain sailing from really. They come back to over two hundred thousand people in the centre of Cardiff as they come back with the cup. I so, think um, that's one of the significant mo- like sort of elements, isn't it, of the of the cup victory? And you were talking about people from all over Wales turning up yeah. to the cup final, um, even their bit of rival Swansea fans yeah. turning up, and it was the first non-English side to win it, wasn't it? And it was the the yeah. Did, 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 it, I think it can't be kind of overstated how important that was for. No, that's right, and it was it was, you know, it was a vindication of the Cardiff's board, and the fact that they went and spent an awful lot of money on him, and he produced the goods and he did it. I mean, not only that, it was St George's Day as well, which sort of rubbed it. <laughs> it couldn't have rubbed it in anymore, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was vindication for for them spending the money that they did on him. And one of the, the one of the great things I think about the Huey Ferguson story, kind of generally, is a lot of the sort of the unusual quirks that you don't really hear mm. so much about in in football discourse these days. And and in particular, there's a story about uh, his beloved cat Trixie, uh, and mm. how it became sort of synonymous with that FA Cup win. Yeah. Could you firstly explain the, the what the unusual story of the black cat from Southport and how it became Cardiff City's mascot for the the 1927 FA Cup final? Yeah, it- it is an amazing story. Uh, well, it's a crazy story, really. Um, they, they drew Bolton in the first, I think, the third round, first round, third round, and Bolton were the holders, and they stayed up at the, um, they stayed up in Southport, and they were playing at the Royal Birkdale Golf Club up there, and the, the lads were playing, and there was just a kitten, a black cat followed them all the way around, most of the holes. Huey decided to, pick it up and decided to try and find the, uh, the owner. Uh, actually, you know, someone told him, well, it, it, the cat belongs there. He went and knocked on the door, said to the people, this is a, you know, this is a great omen. Is there any way that we can keep the cat as a side? Um, the owner said, you can do, but if you, you could, uh, it was a fair exchange. If you get to the FA Cup final, um, you, you can have him and we'll have two tickets. So they agreed and they took the cat off with them and then beat Bolton as well. So straight away, that reinforced the fact that this was an incredibly lucky cat. And the cat 
followed the team all the way through and then ended up, they tried to return the cat and the cat didn't want to even come out of the car. So they took the cat and the cat lived, Trixie its name was, the cat lived at Ninian Park and lived there till 1939 when it passed away in, in 1939. So it was, it was a really strange, really strange story. And then going back to, I think, to 2008, when Cardiff went to the final, Huey Ferguson's grandson, they took a small stuffed black cat with them as sort of a, a, a good luck charm. But it, yeah, it was something that, that obviously they he was in he was suspicious about and you know superstitious about and it's it it worked from but yeah as you say it's a it's a great little story yeah it's what again it's another one of those little things that you get with football that you don't really get so much now because everybody knows yeah. everything it's yeah. just one of those little stories that that that, that eke out and you know get passed on from from kind of legend don't they really with with football fans but. I I have this um I have this image of if they lost the game of Huey going back given that you take your sodden cap back we lost. <laughs> well, I did think that you can imagine you can imagine what that bus would have been like then what you know what the ticket cap back exactly yeah and they kicked it over the fence or something like that. yeah so <laughs> strap me off in Southport I'm gonna put yeah. give this with this cap yeah. back in it's brought it's brought us but bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, If you're enjoying today's episode or have enjoyed any of our other episodes on Man Marking, either the Flack Apps episodes or any of our interviews or our Not For Me Clive episodes, it'd be greatly appreciated if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever else you listen to your podcasts and just give us a quick rating and a review. It really does help for us growing the podcast, reaching new listeners and continuing to spread the message about encouraging men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Um, so Huey spends uh, another couple of seasons at Cardiff after that before moving back yeah. to Scotland up to, to Dundee. What mm. was the, the reason that Cardiff sold him? It just it seems like a bit of a strange well, it thing was, to happen. Finances had a lot to do with it with the club because it's interesting that the year that Huey left, Cardiff were relegated to Division 2. Um, the club were in a bit of financial trouble. And not only that, in the last couple of games for Huey, a back, he, he developed a back problem which sort of haunted him a bit, really. And he was inconsistent and he was in and out of games. I think he played 20 games his last season and was still top scorer. But it, he was in and out of the side and I just think they thought perhaps now's the time to, to, to let him go, really. And I think he was keen to go back to Scotland. With, with with his sort of family and that was it really and so a, a deal was done I think was um I think reports or anything from 500 to 800 pound he went he went to Dundee for and he, he his time at Dundee was only very very short and was by all accounts quite a difficult period um didn't really find the form that he'd previously had at Motherwell and Cardiff I presume that was largely down to the the back injury that he was he was kind of suffering with yeah, it was. And it, it, it was it was a number of things, really, that he was the, the, they, the, the sort of Dundee fans just thought this was it. He was going to be the saviour of, of the club, although they were sort of ticking along nicely. It was going to be they just signed Huey Ferguson. 
mm. and he didn't produce the play that he that they expected. He wasn't the player. Now that was a combination of it was a vicious circle, really, because he was he was injured, and then while he was injured as well, plainly, then the supporters got on his back a bit. And there were reports of him, and, and I was reading, there were letters in the Dundee papers about how dreadful Ferguson was, how, um, how he couldn't string two passes together. And there were moments where he would fall over and he couldn't, he couldn't um, trap a ball anymore. And all of this, plainly, because uh, his scoring record was, was something like, you know, he, I, I top my head, he, he scored... I think he only scored four or five goals for Dundee, something like that. But all of this, I think, played on his mind, and and and, and there was worries about the fact that he was he as good as he used, you know, as he used to be. Certainly, from the Dundee supporters, they were they couldn't believe what they were saying. And I suppose for them, it's not like nowadays where you know they may you know if it was nowadays, you maybe will have watched on the telly and saw that he's only played half the games and maybe he's not quite as fit and, and, and you get all of that sort of stuff and information. But I guess for them, they're just expecting the best striker yeah. in, the, in the country to turn up and then it's someone who's not quite the player that he was when he'd left four or five. Yeah, years. and it it really all sort of came to a head with, with Huey um, in a game against Hearts. It was December the 14th um, and from for paper reports and from letters in the, in the local papers the crowd became incredibly toxic towards him. Now, as I say, he was falling over. He was, he, he couldn't hardly run. He couldn't, there were reports that he couldn't run in a straight line. And, you know, what on earth are Dundee doing? And they were then promoting youngsters coming through there better than Ferguson. And that particular game seemed to be a catalyst for him. And you have to remember at this time as well, he'd moved back to Scotland. Huey was in digs. He was staying with a landlady in Dundee while his wife and kid children were back in Motherwell. So it was very much... And after the Hearts game, the um, after the Hearts game, the, 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 uh, the manager of, of Dundee allowed him to go back for the weekend back to Motherwell to sort of... Um, it, it, to want of a better phrase, go and sort yourself out and that sort of thing. It's quite interesting, that isn't it? That, that that seems kind of something that was probably, you know, it almost feels like compassionate leave in in some senses, yeah. doesn't it? What you would probably call it nowadays, and mm. it feels quite unusual for the time, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, it was, and obviously that then, uh, he came back, and there was uh, one of the players was staying in the, in the same sort of digs as him. And he made comment about him that he was incredibly morose and he was very down. I mean, I read it now and I read bits now and think, my God, can nobody say this is depression? Mm. Because they said that he was obsessed with the fact that he he couldn't be a foot. He didn't look like he could be a footballer anymore. And that's all he wanted to be. And so, like I said, you know, that that's how it that's how it seems. It's um. It's when you look at these things from that long ago with modern day perspective, mm. it's it's so obvious, isn't it? But at that time, it was it was just something that didn't exist, I suppose, particularly amongst particularly amongst men and footballers. And as you said there, you mentioned at the very start of this, um, Neil, about 
how much he loved being a footballer. He, yeah. he, was, he was really proud of it. And it was, mm. you would imagine that in if it was a conversation that was taking place now, there'd be a lot of conversation about identity and self-esteem and that type of thing. Yeah. And that would be a lot what it was linked to. And and then sadly, in, in 1930, it was just, just three years after that famous FA Cup final goal, Huey was found dead at Dens Park. Would you be able to tell us exactly what the circumstances around his death were? Well, it, well, it appears, as I say, so you have this 14th of December, which was his last appearance against Hearts. And, the, and he played in that game and then he goes away, comes back. And like I said, that was still, he was then dropped. So he wasn't playing at all. Um, he then goes and what they used to do then is they used to have a thing called night training. So some of the players would come back and train at night, maybe go for a run and stuff like that. So Huey told his landlady that this was on the 7th of January that he was going to the cinema, which is not really anything that he, he, he which was what he used to do anyway. It was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, other players who were there, as I say, they commented on the fact that he was morose. He then decides what he does do. He doesn't go to the cinema and he doesn't go to training. What he does is he goes into the Dens Park ground and hides in a corner until everybody's gone and under the main stand. Now there was a kitchen area there. And what he did is he turned on the gas, pulled his cap up over the ring of, of the, the gas ring and, and gassed himself. Um, in the morning, he was found by some painters who just thought it was a homeless man who'd broken in was asleep. They then tried, tried to wake him. They went and got the groundsman. The groundsman came and arrived. And that's when they realised that it was it was Huey Ferguson. And it's, um, you were talking before, Neil, about the difficulties obviously having on the pitch and, 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 and off the pitch then as a result of that. And I was reading there was there's a few, his family maybe thought there was some other stuff going on uh, health-wise that maybe played yeah. some some part in it as well. Yes, yeah, speaking to Huey's grandson, there was. Uh, it, it appears that there was a problem with his ear, and what they believe, as it, it through research about, it may well have been the early stages of a brain tumor. This would then have accounted for his balance, and him being sort of all over the place because it it was such a it was such a different Huey Ferguson from the one at Motherwell and Cardiff. You know, it like I say, letters in the in the paper. They thought it was a different player uh, for, from that. You know, I, th I think it was two goals he scored. Two goals he scored at Dundee, when you consider what he had scored. So yeah, it was. Um, that's what they believe it's. That's what they believe it to to have been the start of. And plainly, he didn't know what to do about it. It's um. It's even it's even more kind of tragic, isn't it? Really, when you you consider maybe that sort of perspective on it, that it was something was causing him not to be able to do yeah. the thing that he was so, you know, that was so intrinsically linked to to how he felt about himself as an individual. Yeah, and it was something that he had no control over whatsoever. There was no. there wouldn't have been nothing he could do about it. It was no. it was purely out of his control. And it it's it, I think when you look at things in that context, it is really sad and. He, he, he left behind a, a wife and a young family. I think his wife was, was his wife pregnant at the time as yeah, well? Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she, she was pregnant. Yeah. And I know it was, it was obviously, you know, 
a long time ago. And when you spoke to, to Huey's grandson, did he know much about how the the family kind of reacted at the time? What the what the, you know how they kind of obviously it must have been devastating for them. But yeah, I really I, difficult. I think there was a because of the time. I think there was an incredible amount of shame about it, mm. about what he about what he'd done. Um, don't get me wrong, from the, the public and through Scottish football and through football in general, a tremendous outpouring of grief. But when you consider those times, it was a weakness. If he was unhappy, then your average person would think, well, why was he unhappy? Was, was it his wife who made him unhappy? And there was very much that sort of train of thought in it's just the shame of it. And it's an interesting thing that he went from that day winning the FA Cup and then almost ending, there was a level of shame, a shame with it really. And I think that's what the, um, I, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, thinking about, I think that's what his wife, Jessie, thought at the time. And I think that's probably what she had to struggle with to sort of rebuild her, her life really. Yeah. And we talked at the, uh, earlier on about the fact that someone with such an incredible goal scoring record and someone who, who, you know, as you say, is one of only seven players to have scored over 350 yeah. league goals in, in England and Scotland, that he's not, you know, he's probably, I think if you did a survey of 100 football fans, you wouldn't yeah. be that surprised if none of them had heard of him. No. And I wonder if the, 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 the sort of mode of his death, the fact that it was suicide, I wonder if that's played any part in the fact that his, that his memory's not been kept alive quite as much as well, perhaps. Yeah, I, and, and I've got to be honest, when I first did, started looking into it, I was really shocked by the suicide because mm. it's almost as if it's almost as if that's a new thing. I know that sounds really strange, but met, you know, you think about how men are portrayed back back in the day and and how that would have been, and it would have been, you know, suck it up, stiff up a lip, just get on with it, and that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And so it must have been a dreadful decision. I mean, as it always is, but. But particularly with that, I, I think I, if I'm brutally honest, I was shocked that somebody took their own life in in those sort of times, really. Yeah, it, I would imagine perhaps it's probably it's probably more common than with, than is reported. That, as yeah. you say, because of the, the public perception of mm. it, there would have been lots of things that wouldn't have been put down as suicides for mm. for one reason or another. I always find with a lot of these episodes we've done, a lot of the suicides that take place are quite violent suicides and, and again yeah. it's it's the same with with Huey it's it's quite an unusual mode of, of suicide it's and it, it's it wouldn't it would have been you know horrific for him to to have been involved yeah. with and you know the the, the 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 sort of mental health elements of the story that's that's you know why we, we talk about things on this podcast was mm. that an element of it that interested you as well yeah absolutely 100 that's what sort of drew me into it it was a great story about him scoring goals, but when you when I tell people now and, and it happens now, oh, you're writing a book, yeah, you're writing a book about Huey Ferguson, Uzi is what they say, and then when you explain, and then that you can see people are incredibly shocked that a, a couple of years after scoring a goal in an FA Cup final, and then you say that thing where well yeah, and then he took his own life, and so yeah, to answer to your question, that's the exact thing that drew me in about all of it really. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it, it's such a short period of time as well. You think that the the so have gone from probably what was the the you know the the, mm. the best day of his life then to yeah you know to that is mm. just it's 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 horrific and 
we were talking about that 2008 FA Cup final and Huey's grandson, I, I read a quote where he was saying that his his father never taught much about what happened to, to his dad. So it's sort of difficult for him to know what his dad had been feeling when they went to the 2008 FA Cup final. It must have been really poignant for him. Yeah. Why do you kind of think that it's important to retell the story of someone like Huey Ferguson, you know, almost 100 years after his death? Well, I just think because it just shows... It's never changed, does it? I mean, what happened to Huey Ferguson could happen in any, could happen nowadays. So although we're talking about something that happened in the 1920s and we understand that those people never had the education that we did, but from the the individual, it could still happen now. And, you know, when I look at it and I just think, my God, if only you could have been able to speak to somebody. You know what I mean? It's... And I think there were different factors. There was the fact that he maybe because he was on his own in Dundee. I go back to the point you always wanted to be a footballer. Um, going briefly off tangent, when Cardiff City won the cup, the, the, the big star really was Fred Keener. Fred Keener drove around in a car. Now, you know, no one else had a, had a car. So it was the love of being a footballer, not because in a sort of showy way, Although Fred was, you know, a, a great a great servant to Cardiff, but I want Huey's style. He just wanted to play football, and I think also it's very much makes me think about those things about how he was perceived because of uh, because of what he did. You know what I mean? And almost as if he was weak and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think it's 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 so right that you you know as everything you've said there, Neil, and I think it's really important to keep stories like this in the in the in the public perception because someone who achieved as much as he achieved and you know it deserves to be remembered amongst the, the greats of Scottish football because from his record you can tell that he, he truly was and he was adored by the Motherwell fans and yeah. by the Cardiff fans and he's still still a bit of a cult hero today isn't he amongst oh absolutely by the clubs and even that even like with Dundee and it's it's going back it's quite interesting because like I say he had to have a level of self-belief to become a footballer anyway, no matter what era you play in, you have to have that to become a footballer. And then to be at the end of your career where you genuinely have no belief in yourself mm. is is, abs- is absolutely incredible. But yeah, um, Cardiff City did him proud when they had their cut run and he's still revered now. Um, Motherwell, you know, he is a, a, a god really at, at Motherwell and even Dundee pay their respects to him as well although it didn't work out I think they they understand the situation that he was under yeah and that's always you know at least that, that's always something isn't it I suppose that it that the football is as much as anything else football is very good at kind of remembering people and, and, and yeah, paying tributes yeah. and respect when can we uh, when can we expect the uh, the book to be to be ready, Neil. I'm not, I'm not putting any pressure on you or anything. But <laughs> <laughs> it'll be out sometime next year. Um, it'll be out next year. It, these sort of things take, as you can, as you can imagine, you know, take a bit of a while. They, um, COVID helps in in parts, but um, yeah, probably next next year. Fantastic, and I presume you can find them and the, find that book in the same place that your uh, that your other books are as well. Yeah, that's right. It'll be done through Pitch Publishing, and it will be. Um, It'll be out, you know, Amazon and, and, and what have you. Fantastic. Neil, I just want to say thank you very much for your time this evening. Well, mate. Thank it's you. been really thank enjoyable, you. really, really no, enjoyable. Thank you for inviting me on. I listened to the podcast. I think it's fantastic. And, well, it, it's been brilliant if to, uh, even if one person looks up, I 
I think I'll have a look and see, look up Huey Ferguson. Yeah. And it'll be worth it. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Neil, thank you very much, mate. Thanks a lot, Dan. I appreciate it. Take care. You too, mate. You too. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It's certainly a, an incredible story and, and, and also a tragic one as well. And as we always say at the end of these episodes, we always want to try and learn something from the story. And there's certainly something that can be learned from the story of Huey Ferguson, particularly around men and, 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 and you know masculinity and talking about mental health. And first of all, I just want to thank Neil for coming on and, and giving us his time and his expertise on Huey Ferguson's life and his, his tragic death. It was it was a real pleasure speaking to, to Neil and, and learning a bit more about the legend that is Huey Ferguson. If you have enjoyed this episode, as I mentioned before, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes and give us a, a five-star review and a rating, that'd be absolutely fantastic. And if you do want to learn more about Man Mark and you can find us on Twitter at Mark and underscore Man. And don't forget to use the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. We have got another of a number of other episodes similar to this, another load of flat caps episodes, you know, featuring the likes of Guy Incher, Robin Friday, Dave Clement, Huey Gallagher. So they're well worth checking out. We do also do interviews with former and a current professional footballers such as Paul McVeigh, which was our last interview. It was out Monday just gone. And we've got another interview coming up on Monday with Louis Weinstock and Stephen Chatterton, a filmmaker and a psychologist. So that's well worth checking out on Monday. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Association football is the most popular outdoor sport in Britain. Thousands play and millions watch the game. Keenest of all are the youngsters, whose heroes are the famous professional footballers, and who dream of the day when they too, perhaps, may wear the colours of a famous club and hear the roar of the crowd. <laughs>